Good morning, everybody. My name is Caleb Smith, one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you are here worshiping with us in the room. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Uh, we've been in a series this summer called Masterpiece and remembering that we are God's masterpiece. Uh, and if you're looking for a bit of an overview and a reminder of where we've come in this summer series and, and really the, the focus of it, I encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Rick's sermon from last week. He spends the first five to seven minutes really diving in and, and giving us that overview. Uh, but today, we're just going to dive right in to our topic for today. Uh, and so, uh, we're gonna, uh, I still want to remind us of our, our kind of bedrock passages here. And it's all out of Ephesians, first in chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace, we can't do enough to earn our salvation. It is by grace that we have been saved through our faith. For we are God's handiwork in other English translations. It says masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then as Paul continues this same stream of thought through this letter to the church of Ephesus. Remember, they didn't have, there weren't chapters and verses here, but we know it as Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life Worthy of the calling you have received. That calling is our salvation in Jesus. So to live a life worthy of that, here's what you need to do. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So based on the things that are highlighted on this screen, you've probably figured out that today... We are going to talk about unity and the art of unity. Now, I do think that this is kind of a confusing and hard topic to actually get our brains around, mainly because our society and our culture are extremely confused about what unity is and how do we pursue it. And if our society and our culture is confused about unity, eventually, whatever our culture and our society gets confused about, it will seep into the church and then we become confused. So to help us out today, I'm actually going to start us out with a list that is on the notes if you pick those up as you came in. We're going to start with the short list of what unity is not. And this list comes from a pastor out of Raleigh, North Carolina. His name is J.D. Greer. And I tried to write my own list, but really after I read his, I was like, well, this is just better. So we'll just use his. So unity is not everything being the same. It's not everything being the same. It'd be weird if we were to be like, hey, before you come in here, uh, you, everybody's got to dress the same and look the same, and y'all have to get this bad haircut. It'd be weird if we made everybody believe the same thing before you walked in. It'd be weird if we asked you to respond in the exact same ways all the time. Though uniformity, though things that are uniform and things that may even be unanimous, though those may happen within unity, they are not the definition of unity. Everything being the same is not unity. Another thing that's not unity is accepting everyone's truth. This is where we get confused. 
Because our society and our culture tells us that if we're sitting across the table from somebody and they tell us what their truth is, we have to accept their truth as truth. Because if we don't, then we actually are in disunity and we are not seeking the, better, the betterment of society. For those of us who are believers in Jesus and have given our allegiance to him, uh, this is going to make a little more sense. For any of you who have not crossed the line of faith yet, this may be a bit disruptive. But the scriptures outline for us not just an option of a truth, it outlines for us truth. Because there is truth and there is everything else. And Adam and Eve, the original humans, they are the ones who gave us the demonstration of what it looks like, what the result is when we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. When we begin to choose to do what is right in our own eyes and not choose to do what is right in God's eyes, then we only cause disruption. And so unity is not accepting everyone's truth as truth. Uh, unity also is not abandoning the faith. And this is where the church gets, gets really scared. Because if we try to make everything the same, and if we begin to accept everyone's truth, then that means that we will abandon the faith. And so the confusion that has seeped in is that the church is going to abandon the things that we call orthodox. And, and I'm not just talking about Autumn Ridge here. I'm talking about even the church in the United States. There are things that are orthodox that will never change. That God is the creator. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us in his image, in his likeness. And that we are the image bearers. And it is because we chose to try to do things that was right in our own eyes, we created a separation from us and God. And if that plays out into the rest of our physical life, then that separation from God for eternity is called hell. And it is only because of the Father's infinite love, infinite grace, infinite mercy that he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to be Emmanuel, God with us, to live a sinless life, to die a sinless death, raise him from the dead, and he now has ascended into heaven. And when we become a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and individually, we each become temples of the Lord. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit then begins to do is to take each of us and to knit us together and to make us interconnected into one temple of the Lord, the body of Christ. And one day, we will all live in eternity. And those of us who believe in Jesus will live in eternity with him in heaven. These are things that are orthodox and will never change. There are other pieces that are also true and a part of that. For instance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that God is three in one. We believe in a virgin birth. And just because somebody believes something different does not mean that they're going to get platform time to be able to preach whatever their message is. Because if we did that, then we would be just accepting everyone's truth. 
And so the pursuit of unity does not mean that we have to abandon the faith. But in order to lean into these three things, there's a fourth item that unity is not either. And unity is not ignoring hard conversations. It's not this idea of like sentimentality where we're just trying to make everybody happy all of the time. If you have any resemblance of a family that is in your life, you know that you can't make everybody happy all of the time. So don't imagine trying to do that like with a thousand people. Because what we're not going to do is just sweep things under the rug and say, you know what, we're not going to talk about that because that's going to make some people unhappy. Or we're not going to talk about that because that's going to make too many of us feel convicted. Or we're not going to talk about that because it's going to be too hard for us to figure out how to engage with it. So unity is not ignoring hard conversations. So, of course, all of this begs the question then of, well, what is unity? And you're probably hoping that there's going to be some neat and tidy definition that I'm just going to plop up here and everybody's going to be like, now it makes sense. But as is usually the case with a lot of things that we study in the scriptures, there's not a neat and tidy definition. Because there are many things that we are called to pursue here on this earth that we will never fully understand until we are on the other side of this physical life and we are in heaven and we see our Savior. Then it will make complete sense. And so instead, what I wanted to do is to give us an example. And this is where I'm going to ask for a bit of long-suffering on the part of all of you. Don't get really freaked out here. I know it says chapters 4 through 15. We're not reading the whole thing. But I'm going to walk us through a part of the book of Acts and a narrative here because at the end, it will bring us back to the point. So just stay with me. So I'd encourage you, the Bibles you brought with you, the Bibles that are in their seat backs, maybe on your digital device, turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, then the Bible in the seat back is yours to keep. Acts chapter 4. Acts is in the New Testament right after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to begin in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That seems difficult enough. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So before anybody in here starts accusing me of being a communist, I'm only reading the Bible. <clears throat> All right, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and uh, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, don't get nervous. Our practical application point today is not go sell your home. But something was at work 
in this example of the early church, at this time, they were not even called Christians yet. They simply were called followers of the way, the way of Jesus. And there were people who owned homes or land. And when a moment hit them, when they felt the prodding of the Holy Spirit, they would sell it. They would bring the money, give it to the apostles, and they would just trust the apostles to do with it what was best. Now, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke. He was a physician and a historian. So Luke finds it important to tell us this next fact. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, again, like apparently Joseph like was such an encourager that they just gave him the name. They were like, Joseph, you, you keep encouraging people all the time, man. You're like, you're like a Barnabas. And then the name stuck. Like that's his nickname. So from here on out, we only know this guy as Barnabas. But Barnabas is one of these who owned land, sold it, gave it to the apostles. For whatever reason, Luke finds it important to tell us this little bit of fact. Now, the, re- the next few chapters get into the story about this guy named Stephen. Stephen was a new believer living in Jerusalem. Stephen began to speak openly about faith in Jesus and preach loudly out in the public areas. And the religious leaders of the day arrested him. And they killed him for his faith. And one of the people who helped to orchestrate this is a guy who we first meet as Saul. That's his Jewish name. His Roman name was Paul. I'm going to call him Paul from here on out. Paul helped to orchestrate Stephen's death. Paul then began to orchestrate more persecution throughout the city of Jerusalem and more believers in Jesus were arrested and put to death. And Paul was so good at his job that the Jewish leaders said, Paul, it's time for you to go to another town because we hear that there are other people who believe in Jesus in these other places. So we need you to go out and take care of things over there. So they sent him to Damascus. And while Paul is on the road to Damascus, Jesus, who has risen from the dead, who is ascended into heaven, appears before Paul on the road. Go read that story. It's amazing and fascinating. But Paul is convicted Convicted in his, uh, in his doubt, in his disbelief, gives his life to Christ. Paul continues and gets to Damascus. And in Damascus, he is then cared for by people who believe in Jesus. They care for him. They help to start, begin to teach him about Jesus. He begins to preach in Damascus. And he begins to help people convert from Judaism to being a believer in Jesus. So much so that the religious leaders in Damascus try to kill him. So they, the Christians, they now take Paul and they're like, get out of here, let's get you out of Damascus. Are y'all following me so far? So Paul is now running away from persecution. And we come to chapter 9, verse 26. So flip forward in Acts. All the way to chapter 9. If you're interested in what happens in between there, you can read on your own later. Chapter 9, verse 26. 
When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like if we had somebody who came in here and threatened to kill us all, and then somehow they disappeared and we didn't see them for a while, and then they came back and they were like, hey, I believe in Jesus, we'd be like, I don't think so. That's why we got a security team. Those guys would take care of him. He's trying to get back into the disciples. He's like, guys, I believe I'm with you now. And I think logically they're like, no way, no how. Verse 27, but who? Barnabas. We haven't heard about Barnabas except back in chapter 4. But Barnabas took Paul and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas told them how Paul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus, Paul had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Who's at fault for Paul beginning to start his ministry? Barnabas. And from this moment on, Barnabas and Paul spend the next 10 to 14 years together. They continue to preach. They continue to have many people come to faith because of their preaching. The disciple called Peter, he actually has Barnabas and Paul come and help him in some of his preaching. And many times, numbers aren't even given. It just says a great many people believed because of the things that they preached about. These guys are in tune together. They are in step. They are in unity. And there's got to be something about the way they look, too. Like there's a a mentor and disciple relationship going on here. Because they go to one town, and it must have been about the way that Barnabas looked. Because everybody in that town, you know, they're believing in Roman and Greek gods. And they called Barnabas Zeus. I can only imagine it was because he had some really long white beard going on or something. I'm trying. We're getting there. But they're like, Barnabas is Zeus, and and Paul, he's got to be the guy who's serving Zeus. They were knit together in ministry. So these two guys leave their area. They decide, hey, let's go and let's visit some other towns, because we've heard of some other cities. It's in what we know as southern Turkey. They're like, we're going to go, we're going to go to these other cities because we hear there are, there are Jesus followers in these places too. So let's go and let's find out and let's go and preach. Let's do all of the things. So they decide to leave and they decide to take somebody with them. And the guy they decide to take with them is a guy named Mark. Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Mark's brother was one of the people killed after Stephen was killed back in, back in chapters five through, through eight. Y'all remember that? The persecution that continued to happen in Jerusalem, Mark's brother was killed during that persecution. Paul and Barnabas getting ready to go on this trip, and Barnabas is like, hey, let's take Mark with us. While they are on their journey, there's persecution happening to them and the threat of death, and Mark abandons them. He runs away. He leaves them. 
Barnabas and Paul finish their journey. They come back. They report on it. They spend some years doing some more teaching and preaching around a city called Antioch. And then they get to a moment where they decide, hey, you know what? Let's head back out again. Let's go on another trip. And then we come to Acts chapter 15. I know I skipped 11. You can write it down and read it later. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them and had not continued with them in that work. They, Barnabas and Paul, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. This is a really nice way of saying they had a big old argument and they couldn't come to an agreement. And they went in opposite directions. Barnabas takes Mark and goes one way. He believes in him so much that he's like, we're going to give him another chance. It fits. What's Barnabas? What's, what's the meaning of Barnabas' name? Encouragement. He's like, nope, second chance. Let's take him again. Paul's like, no way, no how, not wise. He deserted us. So Paul takes a different guy, and they go a different way. And nowhere, nowhere in the rest of the Scriptures do we see any mention of Paul and Barnabas coming back together. And we are reading a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is not just like one church in one location. We're talking about multiple house churches throughout the city. Paul is writing this letter to them. And a guy who couldn't keep unity with his best friend after 10 to 14 years is telling us to keep unity. So what's the definition of unity? Last week, Pastor Rick gave us this list. This is a list of all of the backgrounds or the places of reference that people came from that were worshiping in the early church together, especially in Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these again. Go back and listen to last week's message if you want a little bit more time spent on this list. But what I did was I took this list and I was like, all right, well, let's just apply it to today. And really, it's not even about the American church, though it's, well, the list I'm going to show you is true of the American church. But I can tell you for sure that it is true of Autumn Ridge. So ready? Here's the list of backgrounds and places of reference. That there is at least one person in here who comes from at least one of these lists or one of these items. Catholics, Lutherans, Baptists. You could stop here. These three groups have been trying to kill each other for generations. Those who have predecided that they're going to vote for Trump and those who have already predecided they're going to vote for Biden. Those who are tempted by an anti-gospel sexual ethic, whether it's homosexuality or adultery. Those who are tempted by an anti-gospel treatment of others. Where because of your power 
or your influence or your control. You're tempted towards physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse on somebody else. Those who prioritize blue lives matter. Those who prioritize black lives matter. Those who come from one-job homes where it only requires one person to have one job and they're able to make ends meet. And then there are those who come from multi-job homes where multiple jobs are required to make ends meet. And sometimes it's one person in the house who works those multiple jobs. The unemployed, the desperately poor, the filthy rich, the descendants of American slaves and the descendants of American slave owners. The young, the old, and then just to round things out, liars and thieves. I'm pretty sure uniformity inside of unity, every single one of us is a liar. So we all find ourselves somewhere on this list. So again, I ask, what is unity? Here's what Paul tells us to the church in Ephesus. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. And then just a few sentences later, he says, so Christ gave, the, gave himself, I'm sorry, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity is not a neat and tidy list of the things that we are to do. Unity is a collective pursuit of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus. Because here's something we never see throughout the rest of Paul's writings or throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We never see Barnabas and Paul continue this schism. They don't all of a sudden break apart the church. We don't see anything referenced where it's like Barnabas is now mad at Paul. So Barnabas is like, hey, everybody, come follow me. Let's create the church of Barnabas. Paul doesn't do, this to Paul doesn't do it either to his side. Paul actually has a moment where he, he says in a letter, another letter, hey, some of you are saying that you are, are disciples of Apollos, and, and some of you are saying that you're disciples of me. But guys, listen, remember, that's not the point. The point is, is that we are all disciples of Jesus. And Paul must have thought that Barnabas did something right with Mark. Because later on in Mark's life, Mark is the author of the gospel according to Mark. Paul actually asks for Mark to come and be with him and minister to him. So even though they had a sharp disagreement, did their unity around the mission change? No, it did not. Not in any way, shape, or form. And that is a reminder for us 
that unity is not just about trying to do everything the same and to keep everybody happy. Unity is all based in the spirit and in our faith. So what does it look like to pursue unity? There's one example that is a bit of the controversial example, but it has seeped into the church and it has divided the church over the past five to seven years. It's not just Autumn Ridge. This is the American church. Every time a police officer is killed in the line of duty, we should be sad and heartbroken because an image bearer of God has lost their life. And now the people that are connected to that individual have to figure out how to live the rest of their life all of a sudden and with heartache of not having that person around. And every single time anyone unnecessarily loses their life at the hands of police, we should be sad and heartbroken because an image bearer of God has lost their life, their physical life on this earth. And everybody who was connected to them now has to figure out how to live life all of a sudden and suddenly without the one that they cherished and loved. And the problem in the church is not about us just thinking about that and being like, well, I wonder if we all measure up. No, our problem is that we probably have an instinct we have to fight where all we want to do is look at the person who's on the other side of that line and we want to call out, yep, it's a good thing he talked about that because they need to be sadder for me. But Jesus spoke directly to this. You need to be very, very careful about pointing out the speck in somebody else's eye without dealing with the plank that's sticking out of yours. And so instead, instead of, of the church being the place where the things that we may disagree on that don't matter for eternity, instead of the church being the place where the things that we disagree on are the things that define us, can we be a place where we pursue unity together in spite of our disagreements? regardless of our disagreements. Because the call of Christ on unity is to pursue unity in the spirit and in faith. And how do we know this? It's not just because of what Paul wrote. It's not just because of his letters. It's because of what Jesus, our Savior, actually said. So if you've got your Bible still open, go to John chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They've just had their last meal together. He's washed their feet. And Judas, who was going to betray him, has already left the room. Chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, in verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, 
A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And almost as if he's just trying to drive the point home. Just a few moments later, flip forward to John chapter 17. He is now praying out loud over his disciples. They are still in the upper room. And Jesus the Son is praying to his Father in heaven. And he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. It's not for just these disciples that are here. My pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. We, we in this room here at Autumn Ridge, those of us listening online, we are those who will believe because of their message. Uh, verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. To borrow a phrase I heard someone else say one time, this is what an unbelieving world simply finds not believable, is when the church cannot step forward in love and unity, when the church only seeks after disunity within itself, because if we only seek out disunity in ourselves, then we are no different than the world. And the call of Christ on our lives is not to get unity perfect. The call of Christ on our lives is to pursue unity in the spirit and the faith. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, in ways that we can never predict or imagine, unity will become a reality. And then... One day, just as we are here in this room today and we stand shoulder to shoulder and we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together, we will one day do that, bowing shoulder to shoulder before the throne of grace, singing his praises with people from all times and all places. May we not be able to be called a people who are divisive. But may people look at us and may they say, man, the unity and the love that they have, there's something different about that. Because Jesus says that as we pursue that, then those who don't believe will come to believe in him. And our desire is that as many as possible will believe in him. So let's be united in the call. Let's be united in the mission. 
And even in the things that we disagree on, may we be able to stand shoulder to shoulder and never forsake the power of the Spirit through faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you knowing that there are many ways in which we do not practice unity well. And if we're honest, Father, that there are times where we feel confused by how it is we're supposed to approach unity. And so I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would remind us, you would encourage us, you would correct us, you would convict us, you would train us. in the ways in which we are to pursue unity so that we can be an example to the world of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unified together. May we be a people who do not allow the chains of disunity to divide and to separate us. May we be a people who seek out to build up the strong bond that is unity in the Spirit through faith. And at the end of the day, may we remember that you are our God and that we are your people. For it is in the name of our Savior, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.